0: You see the planet as something bigger than yourself. You see it as a living organism. And I'd say most importantly, you see the planet without borders. You see a planet without race. You see a planet as truly being the one and only unifier.
1: The history of humanity is the history of war and conflict. And it is certainly a tribute to the countries cooperating on the International Space Station That we all have been able to find a way to get together through thick and thin over all these years and it would be lovely to think that that can be the model for the future but i think time will tell
2: greetings earthlings and welcome to the podcast today we are going to explore our insatiable desire to explore specifically the planets and the stars 2021 was dubbed the year of civilian space and as early as 2024, we could see the launch of a commercial space station, but we have a lot to accomplish before that. So that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. My name is Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I handle communications and marketing for companies within the energy transition with Technica Communications, and I support everybody in this space with Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability, and I hang out a lot with Christian on this podcast.
3: Hello there. I'm your other co-host, Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, and I'm a policy analyst in the energy industry. You know, and today I feel like we get a chance to explore this second wave of space exploration. And let's put this in some context here. We first went into space in the late 20th century, and we had that sort of first wave of expansion into space. And then, you know, there was something of a downtime, something of a lull, and now I feel like we're going into a second wave with some new important developments like the reusable rockets from SpaceX, new companies getting involved like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic.
2: Right, and it's not like we stopped going into space. It's just like the work we did was related to the space station or it just became a little bit rote, a routine. And what you're referencing, Christian, I feel is this new excitement. We're gonna go back to the moon, right? With the Artemis mission. And eventually set up a space station on the moon. It's like the second, I don't want to call it next generation, because that's like a Star Trek reference. That's like would be an unintended pun. But it's like you say, it's the next wave, it's the next golden age of space travel.
3: Yeah, private companies are playing more of a visible, prominent role this time. They've always been there, but they're a little bit more in the lead now. Additionally, we're seeing some new plans for commercial activity in space. And this does bring up the big question of how corporations are going to behave differently than governments when it comes to operations in space.
2: Yeah, because when you're a corporation, you have this concept of the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that's, you know, not really existed in space beyond operating satellites. So we're moving into this time where you're going to have people living and working in space and all of the complexities that come with that. So to get a sense of what might come, we spoke to a company that's partnering with NASA on the Artemis mission, as well as Jeff Bezos and his venture with Blue Origin. And we wanted to talk to him to get a, a peek into the concept of a commercial business park in space, how people on the ground might benefit from that work, and what it's going to take to make it happen.
4: Neeraj Gupta. I'm the general manager and senior vice president for our space destinations business sector at Sierra Space. And in a nutshell, my job is to help put the first commercial space station in space and open for business.
3: So let's talk about this concept of a commercial space station. What sort of role would this structure play in activities in space in general, and particularly in the commercial realm?
4: I think the art of the possible is still out there. you know. We don't claim to have all the right answers. One of the things we think about is making a really flexible and open architecture to allow people to come up with really great ideas. Think about developing new technologies, new drug formulations in biopharma to different types of telecommunications, developing energy sources. There's a lot of different things that can be created in space that we can use For our life here on Earth, what we like to say is we're developing a platform in space to benefit life on Earth. And we really, really mean that. It's not to get off planet just to do things in space for space, but do things in space for the benefit of humanity. And, you know, a perfect example of that is, you know, one of the things they created on ISS was memory foam. And one of the things you do, everybody thinks about memory foam we hear on the ground and think about it in beds and all kinds of things. But it was actually developed originally for the space program. That's fascinating.
2: So for our listeners, can you describe what this space station might look like?
4: Basically, what this system is, is it's a modular system with multiple things that connect to it. I talked about some of the pieces, what we call those pieces. Think of them as large cylindrical pressure vessels that really connect together. So the core module, for instance, is about five meters in diameter. And it connects all of these things like a long hallway Uh, Our long connection between one building to another building, right? So if you think about a city block, for instance, where you have bridges and bridgeways that are connecting from one building to another to connect those buildings, that's what kind of the core module does. It has ports on both sides of those so you can connect additional systems to it. One of those uh, pieces that we're connecting is called our life module, which is a large integrated flexible environment is what the acronym is. But what the life is really is a about 10 or 12 feet in diameter that goes out to 27 feet when it's fully inflated in diameter. So think of a of a large kind of three-story building that gets connected to that center spine, which we call the core. From there you have what we call the energy mast, which connects to the system. And think of it like a mast, like a mast on a boat, for instance, where you've got this piece that's sticking out, but instead of catching, you know, having a large sail on it like a boat would have. It really has solar arrays and radiators that really help you generate the power for the entire system. And then we have another piece we call the node. A node is, if you're familiar with the International Space Station, they've got these areas where vehicles can come up and dock to the system. So again, this is a smaller cylindrical system that allows for our space plane to connect for any other visiting vehicle that might be bringing cargo or people and connect to that location.
2: So how big is it going to be? Could you compare it to something on Earth?
4: Yeah. So the life module itself is basically 1,200 square feet. So think of a you know three-story, 1,200 square foot house. That's basically what one life module is. When you put it all together in the first instance of an orbital reef, it's basically three times that size. So about 3,000 square feet or so for the initial setup, and then it can grow from there basically as large as we the commercial activities really tell us to go, but we can really continue to grow it indefinitely from there.
3: So let's talk about those commercial activities. If you have a 1,200 square foot or a 3,000 square foot commercial building, using that metaphor, who are your first tenants? Which businesses have expressed the most interest in participating in this? What kind of businesses?
4: Great question. There's a lot of really interesting businesses out there. And like I said at the beginning, right, there's, We think that we don't know all the businesses that are out there that are going to want to use this long-term. And so we're making this flexible so anybody can really use it. But some of those areas that are really interested in the near term, biopharma is an area that's really kind of unique. What they've proven on ISS, for instance, is they've proven you can grow a tumor in 3D, which you cannot do on the ground. When you try to grow a cancer tumor on the ground, you can only grow it in 2D. And that's really because of The gravitational forces that exist on the ground. Whereas your body, that doesn't happen, right? Your body is actually more like a zero G or a microgravity environment. So in space, you can actually grow it in 3D. It really starts to unlock a lot of the different potential around what causes a cancer tumor to form and how can you then maybe go treat or attack that by being able to study it in that form. So there's, you know, Biopharma is one of those areas. We see, obviously, telecommunications. A lot of people know about telecommunications in space. But beyond that, even you know, think about development of different energy sources or different materials in space. By having no gravity, by having the ability to have extreme conditions, you know, we can only go so hot and so cold on the surface of the Earth. But we can take that to a different level when we go into space, both on either side. So really gives you some different capabilities to create new materials or evolve materials we have on the ground to something stronger, more flexible, more capable in space. If we can shift gears for a minute here,
3: because I know you have limited time with more with businesses in space, we also end up with employees in space and more workers in space. What sort of jobs do you expect? What will what really be the common jobs of people working in space?
4: Yeah, there's a lot of jobs in space and you know, you don't have to be in space to do a job in space. I think that's one of the many things and you know, we see people going to space astronauts really starting to change what that looks like from obviously to a tourist, but you know, those operating in space, you can think of researchers going into space and actually doing their science right there and being right next to it. But there's a lot of different types of work you can do from creation of, you know, those those that are on the ground operating these systems. You know, one of the things that that we're setting up is the ability for anybody to have direct access to what they're doing in space.
2: It's so exciting, all these different types of jobs and careers, really, and lives that people are going to have in space. I'm wondering, how do you mitigate the risks? I'm actually reading the third book of the Murderbot Diaries, which is a really great novella series about a security robot that gain sentience and he protects these people that have to have bonds on their lives because they're going out and doing these very dangerous things on these planets. And it got me thinking, like if you were someone who was going to take a job in space, like might you have a separate type of life insurance to protect you because you're going out into this inhospitable environment or have you guys thought about how you might mitigate some of these hazards or worker protections that you might implement for people?
4: you know, it's an interesting thought, right? And you think about anytime a new industry kind of comes up, there's new challenges, right, that you face and ways you got to think about how do you operate that workforce? What are the unique challenges? Like when people are drilling oil in offshore rigs, that comes with different challenges than, you know, industries before it. And so, you know, each one has kind of something, something unique around it. We have been thinking about kind of what those protections are. The first and foremost thing is making sure people are safe right so we're taking all the precautions up front to make sure that we do the right testing we are working hand in hand with nasa to make sure that they also believe that we're doing the right testing in fact we've been doing a lot of testing around our life inflatable habitat we just did a recent burst test we've actually done now two of them both very successful and we take those to four times the capability of the system right so we it has to last at least four times the amount of pressure that it's going to see in space. And the reason for that is to make sure people are safe.
3: So what I take away from our conversation with Niraj is that there's going to be some kind of commercial activity that benefits from microgravity. I guess that's going to be some form of manufacturing. And also that this is going to require a workforce in space.
2: Yeah, and initially that workforce is going to be small, but I think it's going to grow pretty quickly over time because 2024 is just the first timeline milestone that these companies are targeting. And it's going to happen pretty quickly after that. You've got Orbital Reef, Sierra Space, they're planning that one. But there's two other companies that are vying to be a commercial space station provider. One is Axiom Ordable Segment. It's planned to be a commercial section of the International Space Station. And it's designed to be separated from the ISS and become a separate Space station, and that could launch also in 2024. And then you have Starlab, which is a low Earth orbit commercial space station designed by NanoRacks, and that could be operational as soon as 2027.
3: And this brings up questions like what happens when there's an accident or something terrible happens on one of these commercial enterprises and the stock tanks? Are companies going to be steadfast in their commitment to these efforts? I mean, we'd like to assume so, but that's hard to predict.
2: Absolutely. I think that's the, one of the biggest questions. My hunch is that these companies have a sense of the magnitude and of the economic opportunity, so they wouldn't be investing such huge amounts of money in these initiatives if they were skittish about the first thing going wrong. So I put my faith there. But let's face it, these are tremendous engineering challenges, and things can and will go wrong.
3: Yeah. And that's why we have OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But Is space within OSHA's jurisdiction?
2: Maybe, I don't know. Maybe we need to add an extra S in the future. So it's the Occupational Space Safety and (laughs) Health Administration.
3: OSHA. OSHA, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there's another company that you've been looking into that's planning both luxury accommodations and commercial and manufacturing operations, right?
2: Oh, right, yeah. So thank you, Christian. That company is Orbital Assembly. And we'll put a links to all these companies in our show notes if you guys are interested in checking them out because they're pretty cool. Obviously, it's all vision, not a whole lot of reality, but very big visions here. Orbital Assembly is claiming that they will be the first business park with artificial gravity. They're planning to put their station in cislunar space. And that's the volume of space that's created by the moon's orbit around the Earth. Some of that would be in low Earth orbit as the moon passes around the Earth and then some of that would be farther away from the Earth.
3: So that's cool, but how much gravity are they going to be able to create?
2: Well, they're calling it hybrid gravity and that could be anywhere from 0 to 0.016 g. So their Voyager station looks like a big wheel with the docking in the center and a ring of these big oval pods which are sort of like places where people would live work or play like sort of around the wheel if you will and they say they could accommodate like 280 guests and 112 crew members at one time and the station of course wants to host businesses manufacturing and national space agencies as well as space tourists one of the taglines of the company is um i love this they say we're not camping in space anymore And I'm sorry, but it better not feel like camping at $5 million for a three and a half day stay.
3: $5 million?
2: (laughs) Yes, for three and a half days. I've
3: heard of expensive hotel rooms, but
4: whoa.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Forget five stars. It better be like 10 stars. So obviously, only the ultra wealthy are going to be able to experience this. You know, highly successful corporations with money to spend. I mean, to put this into context... Blue Origins, quick rocket trip to the Carmian line, which is like that delineation, that point in space where you have left the Earth's atmosphere and you're technically in space. That's $28 million. And you could, you know, you could go up there now if you wanted to. A Virgin Galactic ticket, $450,000. Space Perspective, which is another company, $125,000.
3: Okay. So... How many people have that much money?
2: Not a lot of people in that category. So space is not necessarily going to be accessible to most people, at least in the near future. So it's not going to be cheap. But I think there are some other ways that are, quote unquote, more affordable to be a space tourist where you don't have to spend millions of dollars.
3: There may be, and certainly more people would be likely to take advantage of it if this was brought down to a more affordable level. But I think you've done some research into this. Aren't there some companies looking at not exactly taking you into space, but taking you into the stratosphere?
2: Yes, exactly. The stratosphere. Thank you, Christian. It's that second layer of atmosphere. So the first layer is what's called the troposphere. So think Mount Everest, airplanes, 20 kilometers. Then you have the stratosphere, which is from 20 to 50 kilometers. That's where weather balloons will float up to. And then, of course, you have the methosphere with uh, 85 kilometers, and then the Kármán line, which is at 100 kilometers. And for some context here, the International Space Station is just beyond Earth's atmosphere in outer space, so beyond the Kármán line. And so the stratosphere, even though it's not technically in quote-unquote outer space, it really does feel like you're in outer space. I mean, you can see the curvature of the Earth, You can see the Earth and the stars against the blackness of space. I mean, you're out there.
3: So how do I get into this?
2: Well, you're still going to need a lot of Benjamins. (laughs) (laughs) I was fortunate enough to speak to a visionary behind one of these companies that is focused on the stratosphere, and he gave us some really...
3: So how do I get into this?
2: Well, you're still going to need a lot of Benjamins. (laughs) (laughs) I was fortunate enough to speak to a visionary behind one of these companies that is focused on the stratosphere. And he gave us some really good details on how we can make space tourism and the opportunity to experience space slightly more affordable.
0: My name's Ryan Hartman. I'm the uh, president and CEO of WorldView. The company was founded when a gentleman by the name of Alan Eustis decided that he wanted to break the world record for the highest skydive and the longest freefall. Not the Red Bull one, the one that broke the Red Bull record. We don't have quite the marketing machine like Red Bull, but that's how the company got started was taking Alan Eustis to 137,000 feet. But in doing so, the remarkable thing about it was his experience of viewing our earth and recognizing that This was a medium to be able to deliver that to people.
2: When we talk about worldview and what you all are doing, can you describe for us the type of space tourism someone might experience with your company?
0: It's important to me to always start with why we exist as a company. And that is that we exist to inspire, create, and explore new perspectives for a radically improved future. And so when we break that down and we think about inspired perspectives, our approach is to create a unique opportunity where we can immerse people in the beauty of the planet, the fragility of the planet, the history of an area before we ascend them above it, where they can experience viewing it from on high. And then the idea of a radically improved future comes from our ability to deliver it to as many people as possible. And so it's our firm belief that People who have a peak experience, who have an opportunity to once experience the beauty, the fragility, the history of an area, and then see it from above, it creates a peak experience. And if we do it correctly, that peak experience leads to somebody having a newfound respect for our planet. Maybe they spend a little bit of time just to learn how they might decrease their footprint and increase their handprint on the earth. So that's in essence, our approach to space tourism. And so to apply technology to that, it's really using the same technology that we used to take Alan Eustace to 137,000 feet, which is a stratospheric balloon, but designed a space capsule to take people up in it and deliver that experience. Uh, the experience itself starts at one of our seven spaceports around the world that we're, we're building. These seven spaceports being in wondrous places. Uh, we call it the Seven Wonders of the World Stratospheric Edition which is the places where we can deliver that experience on the ground. And uh, those places are the Grand Canyon, you know, which is a magnificent place to see just on its own. But then seeing it from the edge of space provides a whole new perspective on the Grand Canyon. And then Spaceport Great Barrier Reef, you know, and getting to understand the beauty of the ocean, the beauty of this magnificent reef, but also the fragility of it and the impact that we as humans might be having on the Great Barrier Reef. And then places like the Great Wall of China, which is just an incredible feat of engineering, of human innovation from the very earliest of days. And then the next spaceport, Aurora Borealis in northern Norway, where one might get to experience you know, the wonder of space, if you will, the wonder of the stars and the galaxies. And then spaceport keys the pyramids. And much like spaceport. Great Wall of China, the Giza pyramids providing, in my opinion, an intersect, one of the first intersections of humanity and the wonder of space. And then Spaceport Serengeti operating over the Maasai Mara in Kenya, Africa, where you get to see, obviously, the beautiful Serengeti, but also get to see the impact on wildlife that climate change might have. And then lastly, Spaceport Amazon jungle, where one gets to see what is, again, in our opinion the origin of so much of the Earth's weather systems and the importance of the health of the Amazon to everyday life. Being able to help people view the beauty of it, but also have that understanding is a big part of our space tourism. So when we think of space tourism, we think of it as something so much more than a thrill ride.
2: Yeah, I, I can see how a trip into the stratosphere will be a life-changing event in a way. And they say that the modern environmental movement was sort of born out of those first pictures that we received from the Apollo missions. And people suddenly could see the planet in such a distinct perspective that helped them to understand, you know, we need to protect this. This is our home, right? It's not just about us as individuals, but it's about us collectively. So I appreciate that you're You're providing another type of, as you call it, peak experience that could really give people this life-changing perspective and help them see just not only the world, but society, their role in it and their role in their own life in a new way and leave them changed in a positive fashion.
0: So I read a quote when I was a young teenager, I must have been 12 or 13 or something. And the quote has stuck with me ever since I read it because I didn't understand it at the time, but I was intrigued by it. And the quote's from Plato, where Plato said, for one, to understand the earth upon which we live, they must first rise to the very edges of the atmosphere and beyond, for only then will they understand. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm on earth, I can like pick up sand and rocks and engage with the earth. Like, What does that mean? And, but for some reason, that quote always stuck with me. And I think that the Apollo missions and those first pictures were the first opportunity to bring to life what Plato knew thousands of years ago, that the only way to truly understand that planet is to remove yourself from the planet. And what I'm inspired by, from so many stories of astronauts who have had the opportunity and it's only like 650 people or so thus far but they all have a similar story, and that is that you see the planet as something bigger than yourself, you see it as a living organism. And I'd say most importantly, you see the planet without borders, you see a planet without race, you see a planet as truly being the one and only unifier. And if we deliver it to one person, we have done something good. But recognizing that there's an opportunity to truly intersect space tourism with an opportunity for people to learn something about themselves and and have a peak experience that inspires them to give back a little bit.
2: I love how you go right to philosophy. You've got my number all day long, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about sort of like what people might be able to expect. I was reading up on your website and there was this mention of the Terminator line and how you would be able to see that when you're up in the stratosphere. Most people don't know what that is. So could you describe for me sort of what someone might see when they go up in the balloon or the capsule?
0: The experience is, I mean, it's very carefully curated to ensure that there are these unique opportunities to see things like the Terminator line. Right. So our flights will originate uh, before sunrise, far before sunrise. And the reason for that is so that we can first deliver a very unique experience to not experience night turning into day like we experience it here when we're like on earth, but rather to watch it happening before your very eyes, to see a very distinct line moving across the earth, which is the sun casting its first light of day over those areas. And so it's, it's a very different point of view when you're seeing that happen from far away. But there is also another reason for it. And, you know, ascending into the stratosphere, into the heavens, if you will, above earth during darkness, seeing all of the stars and then watching the sun rise against the curvature of the earth, but the sky never turning blue. So being able to first experience that you're not watching the sky go from blue to dark, but you're experiencing the darkness from the very beginning. And it just, it remains. And so that creates, you know, a stronger connection to the stars all of a sudden, to the galaxies that you're seeing above. And then, you know, along the way, of course, you'll have an opportunity to have a signature cocktail from space and a a light meal, but you'll spend six to eight hours taking it all in. And what's unique about this approach is The time element of it is important for a couple of reasons. One is the other solutions that do exist that, by the way, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm incredibly excited about the dawn of civilian and accessible space flight and space tourism. But the thing that I worry about is the ability for any one of us to truly take in what we're seeing and and for it to have a long lasting peak experience. When you're spending a few minutes trying to take it all in, you know, and there's so much being thrown at you, you know, weightlessness, trying to take in the curvature of the earth, the darkness of space. And so for us, you know, we wanted to really focus it in on the opportunity to take it all in. So hours, I believe, are important.
2: So when you mentioned a little bit about other types of space tourism that are coming to be available, how does worldview fit into that, that landscape?
0: So we're one of what is going to be a number of different opportunities or one of a different number of offerings within space tourism. I think there's a little bit for everybody. I mean, there are people who just absolutely want to experience the thrill of attaching yourself to a rocket and the six G's of a launch and then weightlessness and that element of uh space tourism is really important to them and i totally get it and i hope that someday i'm fortunate enough to be able to experience that myself but then there are other solutions you know like space hotels right where people get to experience you know the idea of your very own star wars your very own star trek experience where you're, you're living in space for a period of time you know and that's certainly something that that is appealing to many others and then there are companies like ours that are I'll say far more Earth-focused, and it doesn't mean that others are not Earth-focused. But what I mean is we start with connecting people to the Earth and we stay committed to connecting people to the Earth. And it's using space you know, as a medium to stay connected to the Earth.
2: I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to do that. I think you've got a very strong audience that you can pull from. But I am curious to know, like, I was looking through some of your materials and it seems like While a trip up into the stratosphere is still going to be, you know, a significant cost, it seems like it might be more attainable than some of these other types of space tourism where you're, you know, in the rocket or you're going, staying for days in a a space hotel. And I appreciate that aspect of what you're doing. Can you tell me a little bit about how many people have signed up and what's the cost right now? and, And how do you expect that to change with economies of scale?
0: So we started the conversation about worldview around why we exist, you know, that we exist to inspire, create and explore new perspectives for a radically improved future. And the radically improved future part of it was about delivering it to as many people as possible. And I'm often reminded just of how challenging it is to do what we do, that it would be far easier to run a business that wasn't purpose focused. (laughs) So it was really important to create a solution that was, to your point, attainable. It's still expensive. I mean, $50,000 is a lot of money. And that's what our tickets start at is $50,000. It's still a lot of money. And so we also offer for financing because I I truly believe that there is a number, a good number of people that value experiences more than they value things. And I would just want to make a, a pathway that it is available, right? And so the idea of financing where it's basically enabling people to leverage us for A path to saving, if you will, to be able to experience the ride or the space tourism experience. You know, so that's where it all started is $50,000 that you can sign up today with a $500 deposit. I want to make sure that the barrier to even like signing up was as low as possible. And then we'll work with people to to make it a reality for themselves. We started selling tickets uh, October 4th of 2021. So almost exactly a year ago, we've sold just under 1,200 tickets. So I'm um, very pleased to see the demand that does exist.
2: Speaking of humanity and this new perspective that you're going to help bring, how soon could people expect these, these flights to happen or more broadly for this concept of space tourism to really become more commonplace? Like, what, what are you seeing?
0: Well, so 2021 was the year of civilian space, right? That was the kickoff year. For this being a, a market. But that said, to the point of our discussion earlier, it certainly wasn't the kickoff to space tourism that was accessible to most of us. So, solutions like ours and similar solutions, 2024 is when we're going to see far more accessible solutions. It's when you're going to be hearing from the people who experienced it that never thought that they were going to experience it. And it's when we're going to see a significant increase in the number of people that experience it. You know, so here we are, latter end of 2022, 650-ish people ever have been to space or, I mean, even in the upper ends of the stratosphere. In 2024, we will be growing exponentially the number of people who have experienced it. And that's when we're going to see a significant increase in The stories of peak experiences of the overview effect It's where it's going to be more commonplace. It's where we're going to start seeing the positive impact, the positive results of those experiences. And so 2024 is the year, in my opinion.
3: So this is coming year after next. Pretty exciting. Yeah. I have some serious money to save up. Soon. Yeah, honestly, I think I'm probably going to prioritize my son's college fund (laughs) instead of this. But nonetheless, this is amazing.
2: I think that's a wise move, Christian. I'm sure your son will thank you.
3: Yeah. And I also think that, you know, when this idea takes off, I think prices are going to come down fast. I mean, look at the way that electric vehicles were a super expensive thing 10 years ago. And today, a new Chevy Bolt starts at 26 grand. And more importantly, the Wuling, or globally, the Wuling Hongguang in China, the most best-selling EV, I think, in the world, is only $5,000.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Those glorious economies of scale, right? So I think we can assume that pricing is going to come down, but there will eventually be a floor. Yeah. We don't know what that floor will be. It's still probably going to be something that's pretty expensive, However, I really appreciate how Ryan is working to give the worldview experience to people who could never afford it, even if there were economies of scale. Something that didn't make it into the interview, frankly, because of time, is that worldview is partnering with Space for Humanity to send average people into space. So there will be eight of these quote unquote citizen astronauts on their first flight and perhaps more in the future. And this is going to ensure that it's not just wealthy people that get their minds blown by a stratospheric experience and come back to Earth with a deeper appreciation for it.
3: And, you know, so this gets back to some of our big questions for this episode. I think with more people in space, both for work and as tourists, what are the rules? I mean, you aren't on Earth anymore, so you aren't in your home country. So what are the laws? Who's in charge?
2: Big questions, which is why we have all of these treaties. And not every spacefaring country is actually signed on to a number of these treaties. In fact, the U.S. hasn't signed on to at least one of them. That's called the Moon Treaty.
3: Yeah. The U.S. government isn't going to sign on to that. We wouldn't be in charge. And we wouldn't get to exploit (laughs) the moon with no rules. I mean, that's so (laughs) un-American. so (laughs)
2: un-American. This is America. Even on the moon. The moon is America. But seriously, it's classic world politics, right? I mean you're not going to support a moon treaty because it makes an international regime to set rules for developing the moon that would give smaller countries a seat at the same table with the spacefaring countries. And those spacefaring countries spend a lot of R&D to get to the moon and they feel that those countries, quote unquote, shouldn't belong. Mm -hmm. And even if you had everybody sign up to a treaty, who's going to enforce it? Like you said, it's so hard to get there. There's so much you can do in space and nobody's gonna know because how are you gonna check in on it?
3: You know, Lisa Ann, I can tell you've thought a lot about this. Have you been reading sci-fi again?
2: <laughs> I read way too much sci-fi. <laughs> yes. You're right. You
3: know that we're even talking about this as just such a big shift from where we were growing up. In these first stages of space exploration, you know, the idea of something like manufacturing or resource extraction or tourism in space. That was literally science fiction.
2: There's so much to unpack here. What worries me is that we might miss our chance to be more civilized in space than we are on Earth. And then we might continue our petty political bullshit up there, just like we have it down here, when I feel like there's this opportunity for us to be better, which leads us into the final guest of our show, someone who has reported on space for a long time and understands how easily things can go right and wrong.
1: I'm Marcia Smith. I'm a longtime space policy analyst. These days, I'm editor of a website called spacepolicyonline.com. But I've been spending 50 years, this is actually my 50th anniversary as a policy analyst following space, military, civil, and commercial.
3: And within that, would you say that, you know, certainly we've had a lot of excitement about space exploration lately you know, with the launch of the Virgin shuttle and with the, you know, SpaceX and the others, how is today's wave of space exploration different than the ones that have, or rather space launches, I should say, different than the ones that have had happened before?
1: Today, there have been billionaires in the past who wanted to build their own rockets and they're billionaires today doing it. But I think that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have perhaps a stronger personal passion and vision for the future that They're willing to stick with it even when they encounter setbacks. Back in the 80s, when there were some billionaires building rockets, they'd have one failure and that would be the end of it. And I think that with at least these two mega billionaires, and you could include Richard Branson if you wanted to as a third, who seem to have this vision that they are intent on pursuing, that maybe things could turn out differently this time. But they are, it's not a nice phrase to use, but it's true nonetheless, that they are single point failures in the sense that, you know, they could change their mind and decide not to do it or something could happen to them. And so it is a bit much to pin all of your hopes just on individuals because of their personal passion. But I do think that at this moment in time, that it is making a difference in terms of stimulating a lot of the interest in space and galvanizing people to invest in it. So I think that it is one difference today.
2: It strikes me too that with so many new organizations, companies operating in space that the agreed upon frame of conduct becomes even more important. And you know, we have the Outer Space Treaty, which was established in 1967, and that's creating that safe and transparent environment to facilitate exploration and science and commercial activities in space. And, and today the Artemis Accords I'm curious to know from your perspective, being someone who writes about space policy, where are the Artemis Accords going and what do you think are some of the most important provisions that are going to really bolster our ability to operate in space as a society?
1: So the Artemis Accords are something that were developed primarily by the United States and with a core group of countries that were initially interested in it. And it applies only to governments, not to the commercial sector. And it really is about the moon. So it's sort of a narrow focus in terms of principles that countries who are going to be operating on the moon agree to. And I think there are 22 signatories to it right now. So it's a good number, but it's a small number compared to how many countries might actually be doing that kind of operations in space. So it's a beginning and it is a set of principles that at least 22 countries have agreed to. But of course, China and Russia are not amongst them. And China and Russia did sign an agreement themselves a while ago, last year, I think it was, to work together on lunar exploration. Not quite sure where that stands right now. But I think that most people would not be surprised if they came up with their own version of the Artemis Accords. And one can only hope that there'd be a lot of commonality between them. But it's not binding on the countries. It's an expression of these countries that they intend to abide by, these principles. And I think that how the relationships evolve over the next 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years, I think we're just going to have to see how all of that works out. And you can certainly read a lot of science fiction books and look at television programs about the future, and you can see that there certainly is a potential for conflict.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that the Artemis Accords is primarily about the moon. So if there's countries like China and Russia who are not signing on to it, Does that set up the scenario where these countries might try to claim parts of the moon for themselves?
1: Well, under the Outer Space Treaty, you cannot claim anything in space. You cannot claim the moon. You can't claim space itself, that there's no national sovereignty in space under the 67 Treaty. So when you look at resource extraction, for example, which many countries are looking at, then you're taking the resources, but you're not claiming sovereignty over any part of the moon. So there is a distinction there.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a shame that there, you know, there is this prospect that there might be conflict in space as we start to think about how we can extract resources or not. And the International Space Station definitely set up an example for us on how we can operate in space with commonality and less sort of geopolitics, if you will. And I'm curious to know, like... Do you think that there is a way for humans to build societies in space that are more like the ISIS and transcend this current paradigm of nation states? Or do you think it's, we're just going to bring our sort of little petty conflicts with us into space?
1: Well, as I said, the history of humanity is the history of war and conflict. And it is certainly a tribute to the countries cooperating on the International Space Station That we all have been able to find a way to get together through thick and thin over all these years, not just the 22 years, I guess 22 years that people have been living aboard the space station, but the decade before that when it was being built and the agreements were being written. And so it is a very long history of countries getting together despite what was going on here on Earth. And it would be lovely to think that that can be the model for the future. But I think time will tell. You know, the visionaries, you know, are thinking about moving all of Earth's, Jeff Bezos's idea, for example, is to move all of heavy industry off of Earth into cislunar space, you know, with millions of people working in cislunar space and on the moon. And, you know, Musk wants to send a million people or more to Mars. And so when you start getting these huge populations of human beings up there, I don't know if it's realistic. I mean, it sounds like a very depressing future, but I don't know if when you start having millions of Americans in space, if they're going to behave much differently than millions of Americans here on the planet.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, how do you, like, if you're going to be an operation that's going to extract resources from the moon, for example, how do you do that without claiming part of it?
1: Well, you're not claiming the moon itself. You're extracting resources from the moon or right. from asteroids or other celestial bodies, but you're not trying to plant a flag and say, this belongs to a particular country or company if mm-hmm. it comes to that.
3: Yeah, sort of as if the Bureau of Land Management was an international body. So concurrently, the the National Space Council and U.S. Vice President Harris are working on an initiative to flesh out some domestic rules and and possibly future regulations for what they call non-traditional space activities that might fall between jurisdictional cracks or not covered by current law. How does that work interact with the Artemis Accords and other existing agreements? And what do you expect to come out of these talks?
1: The Artemis Accords are for governments, not for the commercial sector. And what the Space Council is doing right now is they're really looking at regulating the commercial sector that's engaged in space activities that are not already regulated. So as entrepreneurial companies will tell you, one of the first things investors want to know about is what kind of regulatory environment they're going to be operating in when they're trying to decide whether or not to invest in a company. And so a lot of these companies really want the government to settle, you know, what are the rules going to be? What can you do? What can't you do in space? And right now, the United States has regulations for transportation, launching things into space and reentering things from space. They have regulations about spectrum management. They have regulations about commercial remote sensing satellites. But there's all these new commercial enterprises coming along like satellite servicing, And there are no real regulations there. There's like a potpourri, a patchwork quilt of things that these companies have to figure out. And so that's what the Space Council is working on right now.
2: And that especially, you know, understanding who's going to be in charge, really, like you said, helps these organizations get the funding they need to set up their operations. And some of the operations we've heard about that we're curious to get your take on are things like microgravity manufacturing. And all of its promises. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, what's the reality that you see since you've been covering this area for so long?
1: It has been a long time. And of course, there have been space stations now for, well, almost 50 years, right? The first space station was launched in 1971 by the Soviet Union, you know, and they had a whole string of space stations. And we had Skylab back in the early 1970s. And now we've had the International Space Station with people living up there since November 2000. And so everyone keeps waiting for, you know, all the great microgravity products that are going to come out of all of this research. And it's been a long wait. Sooner or later, hopefully something's going to come to fruition that is so necessary to have here on Earth that it's worth the cost of doing all. You have to pay to get up to space and back from space in addition to doing the research up there. So it's going to have to be something that's really important and that can be done cheaply enough that people here on Earth are going to be able to pay for it. And we're still waiting. It's been a long wait, but Hope Springs eternal.
2: That brings us to this concept of you know, there's these commercial space stations that all these companies are saying that they're gonna launch and have operational, you know, in the next five years or sooner. And we know that the International Space Station is also planning to be decommissioned and deorbited. Do you think that we're gonna have some commercial space stations up and running before ISIS is decommissioned?
1: Well, that's certainly NASA's goal. So they have agreements with four different companies looking at commercial space stations. Three are sort of like one category and one's in a different category that's going to actually be using the space station initially to attach its modules to, and then it'll separate from that. But I think there's probably a good chance that if these companies are convinced that there's a market for commercial space stations, that they will have something ready by 2028, 2030. NASA's hoping the space station is going to last until 2030. If it does, then I think there's a pretty good chance that there will be at least one commercial space station to continue doing research. Initially, I think NASA's going to have to be a big part of that market, but NASA's whole goal is to be one of many customers. They don't want to be an anchor tenant. They don't want to be the only people using these space stations. They're looking to these companies to start working with the private sector and other potential customers in order to make a business out of this. That's what they're looking for. And time will tell. Those are very useful. Thank you for your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, I appreciate your very pragmatic view of what we can expect, because I think for those who follow space developments, it's a lot of, a lot of rose-colored glasses out there being worn. And the reality is that you know space exploration is, is very difficult and it's expensive. And like you said, commercial interests, if they're gonna thrive in space, have to have something that they can create or do up there that's better than doing it on Earth and justifies all the costs.
1: Right, it's um, risky and it's yeah. very expensive.
2: But I think on the long view, do you expect humanity to eventually establish itself on the moon and have some level of society in space simply because i feel like humans just have this there's this some kind of innate drive to expand beyond this planet in a meaningful way.
1: Well, you certainly hear that a lot certainly from human spaceflight enthusiasts, but there are others who say, you know, really, you can do a lot of this stuff with robotic spacecraft do humans really need to go? And I think, you know, we're still working that out as a species as to how far we want to go. We don't seem to be doing a very good job of taking care of this planet. So I don't know why we would expect that we do any better somewhere else. So I think, you know, an argument could be made that we need to focus on making certain that Earth survives. And then, yes, if there's a group of people who want to move to places like the moon, yes, I mean... It's easy to talk about living on the moon and living on Mars, but you have to really think about what those environments are like to never be able to go out and feel the sun on your skin or the wind in your hair because you can't live there without wearing a spacesuit. I'm not sure what kind of people would want to give up the joys and beauty of Earth permanently, at least, to go and live in one of these other environments. So it's easy to romanticize about it. And there certainly have been all the science fiction movies that do make it look like it's a lot of fun. But I don't know. I think the human spaceflight enthusiasts see this innate human desire to explore and go new places. But I'm not sure that everybody feels that way. I think other people think that Earth is a pretty nice planet and we should stay here. Ah,
2: I really appreciate Marsha for giving us a good dose of reality here, because I feel like it's really easy to get excited about all the potential in space. But then you have someone like Marsha, who's been around for a long time and covered this for a long time to really give you that realistic point of view. And my takeaways from her are like, look, we really don't know who's going to decide who gets what land. And right now, you're not supposed to claim land. But how do you extract resources without claiming land? So I feel like there's a lot to figure out here. And there's so many unknowns. Plus, you've got all these treaties that, you know, people haven't signed on for. So how are we going to make it work?
3: You know, and, and I keep thinking back to the International Space Station, which is this beautiful thing of international cooperation. You know, this sort of Star Trek-esque hope that we were going to be able to do it better. But, you know, now that we look at what's going on in the 2020s, we are not getting along well down here on Earth at all. You know, it's interesting. This was referenced by the musician Brian Eno for his album Apollo. He and a partner did that in the 1980s. And they, you know, it's this really hopeful moment, right, with the Apollo space station. And in an interview, he said, we couldn't do that again because the moment is gone. The optimism that they had at that moment, just it's things have changed. And... It feels like a stretch when I see things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that societies are going to be able to get along well in space.
2: And, you know, the space station, that's a lot of scientists working together, cooperating. There's no politics there. Or you can, it's easier to set politics aside for science. Is that going to be applicable to commercial enterprises?
3: Yeah. And commercial enterprises, including mining, because how are you, go, you know, we're supposed to not damage celestial bodies, but how are you going to extract resources without damaging celestial bodies, without changing things forever?
2: Right. Yes. I feel like, I mean, how often have you seen countries go and do something and the other country says, no, 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 you can't do that. And the first country says, well, we didn't sign on to that treaty. That was our predecessors. So we're not going to abide by that.
3: Oh, that's a great point. What about major changes in government? I mean, obviously, there were all these treaties signed by the Soviet Union. That doesn't exist anymore. Russia is probably not going to honor those. I mean, why would it?
2: Unless there's an advantage to it to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I kind of feel like there's so many question marks related to sort of the nuts and bolts logistics interactions that we're going to have up in space that you really can't nail down what the rules are going to be until you have a test case to create those rules. I mean, I don't know. The Outer Space Treaty, it offers its broad principles and it's a guide for nations, but it's not really a detailed rule of the roads. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gaps. I mean, one major problem is the fact that the treaty doesn't offer a clear definition of what peaceful purpose means or due regard. I mean, I don't know. It's more about like you're not allowed to put nuclear weapons in space, no weapons of mass destruction anywhere in space, but it doesn't prohibit conventional weapons in space or the use of ground weapons in space. So it was written in the 1960s. Like we're in a different time now.
3: Yeah. And it seems like outer space really is the wild west today.
2: And like you said, mining the moon. I mean, how are you going to have proper channels for checks and balances? How are people going to go up there and inspect to make sure you're doing what you say you're doing and you're not harming the moon? It's so far away. And if inspectors do show up unannounced, now they're dependent on your infrastructure because it's such an inhospitable environment. I think we're putting a lot of trust in corporations to do the right thing, but I am starting to feel like we've done that before with other aspects of resource extraction and it hasn't always gone well.
3: Yeah, and I think if we step back and we go really big picture here, the last, you could think of space exploration as being you know, this new frontier and the frontier existed before there was the european colonization of the americas and with total lack of accountability for early european explorers and settlers and we saw what happened which was genocide and massive environmental crimes at other times later on really when the means were there it's extreme exploitation in an environment where there's no means of accountability
2: well even today i mean there's activists who are voicing their displeasure with certain oil companies and their extraction practices In how the environment's being ruined, or I don't, we don't need to get into all that. Like, what did Mark Twain say? History never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. And I think that's what we've got here.
3: You know, I think at the end of the day, we have not developed a sustainable civilization. You know, we haven't developed a civilization that's not dependent upon extraction of limited resources that can't be replaced.
2: I feel like humans don't know how to do anything without planting a flag. What did Eddie Hazard? do you have a flag?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, we just, we're not doing that well in terms of equitable distribution of resources and making sure everyone gets their needs met on Earth.
2: Is it reasonable for us to think that it's going to happen in space?
3: Yeah. And I don't think that a society based upon endless extraction of value, whether that's from the natural world or from workers, I honestly don't think that that's working here on Earth. And I think that if we approach things differently in space, it's going to be because it didn't work here.
2: I'd like to think that space would help us get beyond capitalism. Maybe the timelines are going to run parallel with what's happening on Earth and what's happening in space will provide this wave of opportunity for humans to think beyond the capitalist framework and to come up with something that is better. And as you said, more circular.
3: Yeah, Though, you know, I would note that our other alternatives to capitalism have not been circular either.
2: (laughs) I mean, I went into this episode being like really positive and excited about how space was going to transform our society and make us all better. And we were going to be just, you know, thriving. And now I kind of feel like it's just going to be the same bullshit, just in zero gravity. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Well, I think some people for, you know, I hate to be all whitey goes to the moon on you, but you know, (laughs) there is that real danger. And I think that that's what behooves us to try to do this right. You know, to try to do this as best that we can.
2: Thank you. I think if we can be thoughtful about it ahead of time, we can do better. But if we're not thoughtful, if we're not looking at things objectively, if we don't sit back and think about how do we want things to be We're just going to be on autopilot and we're going to end up with the same shit up there as we have down here.
3: Yeah, I think that there needs to be some serious questioning of how we want to do things differently in space.
2: Wow. Well, I love how we get so philosophical about some (laughs) of this stuff at the end. So thank you, Christian, for that. There's a lot of questions, there's a lot of stuff to figure out. But, you know, we've accomplished miraculous things before as a species. And I fully believe that we can. If we put our minds to it, we can accomplish whatever it is we want in space in the way we want to, so that it can be the best for humanity writ large. And with that, Earthlings, we will see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home.